deep down, we all want to believe that we were cared for and loved. And I didn't want to accept that this person who pretended to care for me in some ways, that it really was never about that. It was always about satisfying his own sexual needs and using me and controlling me. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple, Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. Hi, I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean, and this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Please check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couple Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on a relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of. With the partner they fell in love with. On today's episode, we welcome Sandy Phillips Kirkham. She is the author of Let Me Pray Upon You. And Sandy has an amazing story that, you know, is really going to kind of help a lot of people out there. And so without further ado, you want to welcome Sandy to our podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Well, you know, before we go into your story, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How old are you? And, you know, where are you from? And uh, how long you've been uh, doing this work? Uh, I've lived in Cincinnati all my life. I'm married with two children and two perfect granddaughters and a couple of somewhat well-behaved dogs. Um, I uh, have been doing victim advocacy work since about 2005. I was sexually abused at the age of 16 and spent 27 years hiding that information and keeping that information from my husband and most of my friends, all of my friends really. Um, And it was in 2004 that I had a trigger factor that sent me over the edge, basically, and forced me to have to deal with my issues. And starting from then, I slowly began to speak about uh, the abuse, how it affected my life, my spiritual life, my life with my husband, my friends. And it was, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years that I finally began to realize that I probably needed to tell my story because I was beginning to understand the impact it was having on others and that it's a story of abuse, but it's also a story of hope and healing. And I wanted to make sure that victims out there understood that while abuse can certainly affect you for the rest of your life, it doesn't have to define your life. That is amazing Mm -hmm. work and definitely very much needed in our world today. You know, I think it probably makes sense to start at your trigger moment and then work backwards because that's probably what happened for you in your life. So your life's kind of going along. It's Mm -hmm. 2004. And what happens? So I really had a very wonderful life. I had a great husband and two kids. Um, I was always harboring this secret. I I spent 27 years literally worrying that someone would find out. So I had to, anytime I'd have a trigger factor in the past, I would just learn how to manage it. I would pretend I was okay when inside I was falling apart. Church was difficult for me. I would attend church, but I certainly sat there as a robot and would not let myself engage in any way. So I had practiced for 27 years how to manage these trigger factors. But this particular trigger factor occurred when I um, was traveling to a golf tournament that my daughter was playing in college. And I was, I passed a sign um, to a town, which is where my abuser went to after he left our church. And it just, it, it was a moment that all of a sudden I couldn't control. And I, I didn't understand why I, I was sobbing. I was, I had the chills. I was shaking. I felt he was in the car with me. I could feel him. I could sense him. It was so overwhelming that I finally pulled to the side of the road and sobbed. And I just knew that that moment, this wasn't going to go back, that whatever I had coping skills I had used in the past to control trigger factors weren't going to work this time. And it was then that I decided I was going to have to tell someone. Would you say that 
and this might be some hindsight, that prior to this event, you probably weren't in a position in your life where you were ready to process it. And so it kind of came up at the moment it was supposed to. I totally agree with that. My kids had gone off to college. They weren't home any longer. Um, I was in a place in my life that I thought I was more in control than I had been prior. Um, I also think at that time, the Catholic church issue was coming about. My abuse did not occur in the Catholic church, which is somewhat unusual to some people, but it, it happens everywhere. But I, I think the those undertones of the Catholic church and their abuse was starting to stir something inside of me. Although I will tell you, I, I still did not see myself as being abused. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want that label. And I didn't think that what was done to me was abuse because it, even though I was only 16, I still knew right from wrong. And I still had in my mind, a choice to have said no, which I now know wasn't the case, you know, with the grooming, manipulation, all the gaslighting that goes on. And he was 30 years old and married. He was my youth pastor. So he had all this control over me. So, but it took me, you know, several months to finally say that I had been sexually abused by this man. And the other reason I think is that deep down, we all want to believe that we were cared for and loved. And I didn't want to accept that this person who pretended to care for me in some ways, that it really was never about that. It was always about satisfying his own sexual needs and using me and controlling me. And that's hard to accept. Yeah, I think that's a really important concept because it always is that confusing. Mm -hmm. If it was like a scary person that jumps out at you and they were 100% bad, it would be so much easier. To identify that is what right. he's doing to me is wrong. Mm -hmm. Correct. And the first time that there was any kind of sexual overtones, it was after a church youth group meeting in our in my home. And he waited for everyone to leave. And he began telling me how wonderful I was and how great the church had been going and the work that I was doing. And he just slowly bent down and just kissed me. And it wasn't you know, this hard kiss was an innocent type kiss, one that he could have, if I had gone forward at that time and told anyone, he could have brushed off. Oh, I meant to, you know, kiss her on the forehead, or it wasn't anything like she thought it was. So yes, you're correct. It It is so subtle. And there's such a buildup to this grooming process that when he kissed me, I, I thought, okay, he's my pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he should be doing. And I think he kissed me, but I'm not sure. And I don't want to accuse him of something. And he's been so good to me. And this is a wonderful man that everyone loves in the church. And how could I accuse him of doing something so wrong? So, and it would be another year of this grooming me and, and, and putting me in leadership positions and making me feel important before he would actually have sex with me. So these abusers are very methodical. They're very, they, they, they know what they're doing and they wait for the moment when they feel that their prey is ready to be attacked. How long did the abuse, you know, from start to finish go on? Five years. Five years. Wow. And that in the beginning, you know, I tried several times to get out of it. I, I, you know, I went to him and said, I'm feeling guilty and this isn't right. And I began to understand that this was a married man and he wasn't going to leave his wife. And I, I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. I wanted to have a, a normal life, but his response was always, either one of anger, like you can't leave me, you're never going to be able to do that, quit talking about it, it's not going to happen. Or he would become very caring and say how much he needed me, the church needed me, he would put the guilt on me. And I finally gave up just trying to, and just accepted the relationship, that this was the way it was going to be. And by the end of, within the third, fourth year, I truly was at a point where I had no self-esteem. I I really believed that this was going to be my life. I knew I'd never get married. I'd never have children. And this would only be over when he said it was over. If we, if we go back to that moment um, where he first kissed you in your, I, I can hear it in your thinking and in your brain that your hindbrain instantly is going into this freeze mode. Like what mm -hmm. the heck just happened? Mm -hmm. And then our emotional brain shuts down and our logical brain kicks back in and says, what did I do? Did I give mm -hmm. him signals? Is this my fault? Right. All those kind of things, which is an absolutely normal experience. It is that confusing. And I think that's a really important piece to this, which for people who haven't been through this experience, they think, why didn't you just go tell someone? Right. And it is so confusing. Can you talk about what really happened for you just right around that time? Well, 
first of all, like I said, I didn't want to accuse him of something that he shouldn't, that, you know, maybe I misunderstood. And I certainly thought, well, maybe I did do something to encourage him, to make him believe that I was going to uh, want this kind of behavior from him. And keep in mind, he made it very clear within a short period of time, you know, he called me the next day and said, now, you know what happened was special. So it's just between us. And I was old enough to understand, and even children five and six understand that if I tell on Uncle Jimmy or I tell on so-and-so, this is going to hurt mommy or this is going to blow up. So I knew if, if what I was thinking that maybe he shouldn't be doing this and I tell someone, it's going it, to, this is going to explode in this church. Mm -hmm. And everyone loved this man. He was very charismatic. He was very dynamic. So it, the other thing our abusers will say is, you know, you can't tell anyone because this is going to really blow up in the church, but also it's going to be your fault. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and then who's going to believe you anyway, who will believe you? And I can remember when he told me that for the first time, actually, it was after the first time he had sex with me and he, he he took me home after I had been babysitting and he said now you know you can't tell anyone and you too understand that most people are not going to believe you and I can remember sitting there thinking I don't even believe this I, I can't even believe this just happened to me that I just had sex with my pastor and and the guilt and the shame then starts to go on the victim then I start to feel guilty for what I did and when he says, don't tell anyone, I'm thinking, I don't want anybody to know this about me either. And so, and, and, and what trauma does, and it is very traumatic, any kind of, of abuse, but when trauma occurs, it interrupts your cognitive thinking. It interrupts your rational thinking. And so, yes, there were plenty of people in the church I could have told and would have believed me, but that's not what my brain was telling me. And, and he was reinforcing that thought that you can't tell. Don't ever tell. Now, all throughout this time, did your parents have any suspicion that any they, of this was going on? They did not. And, and people have asked me that many times. But here's the thing. It's the 1970s, drugs, free sex is beginning. Their daughter is in church. Their daughter is teaching Sunday school. Their daughter is singing in the choir. Their daughter is going on hospital visits. Their daughter is giving half of her allowance back to the church. Mm -hmm. There was no indication and again, because this man was so charismatic and so dynamic, they also suck in those around them. They need to have the people around them believe that they're near perfect. And so that no one's going to suspect anything from this particular man because he is so good and all the wonderful things he's doing in the church. And that makes it even more difficult, which is why they are so dangerous because they are so good at what they do and so clever. Um, one instance was, you know, uh, my mom started questioning why I wasn't dating more, you know, and, and so he then would start to arrange dates for me as a, as a ruse so that people would not suspect. So, you know, there was no reason really to suspect that anything was going out. I, but I say that now in hindsight, and I, I tell parents and I tell church leadership, you need to be looking for signs. And there are signs if you're looking for them. And the first one is if you've got a gut reaction that there's something not right. And there were people who would later say to me, you know, I remember that time he said this to you. And I thought that was odd. There are signs. You just have to start putting your antenna up to look for them. And, and I tell people, if this is behavior that you would find strange in a, in a stranger or a neighbor or just another friend, but you accept it because he's the pastor or the rabbi or the priest, or you accept it because it's your brother-in-law, if it were just a neighbor down the street, would you find that behavior unusual that they want to spend so much time with this person? Probably yes. Mm -hmm. Were there any other things that you did it maybe behavior wise because you didn't really have the language back then that would indicate you were going through something did your grades suffer did your sleeping change did your eating habits change yes i mean all of those things happened not to an extent where i was anorexic or anything like that but i was definitely spending more time in my room i wasn't going out because he had isolated me from my friends my very best friend he said i don't really want you to see her anymore i'm sure it was fear that i would tell her which girls do at that age so he began to isolate me from people and the dating was a big issue so people wonder why you know i was fairly attractive i was outgoing not to have dates um and I began to slowly withdraw from the church. I stopped teaching Sunday school. I stopped singing in the choir. 
those were all signs that were there um, that indicated, okay, this isn't the same Sandy that we knew when she was 15. And now that she's 20, there's a totally different kind of personality here. And that's a really common thing that people do when they don't have the language. It does come out in those other, other ways. That's important to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did this all come to light? Um, so it went on for five years. And as most abusers, they start to get sloppy in their behavior and all of a sudden become cocky and think they're never going to get caught. And he became a, a little more daring in his behavior. And a couple of the people in the church became suspicious. So they followed him one night. Um, they found us in a hotel room and he was taken back to the church. Um, I was left alone there um, about um, two, three months after that night, I was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I loved that church. I loved everything about that church. And the, the people in that church were so good to me. He was forgiven. Uh, he was given a going away party. And he was sent to the next church where once again, he committed sexual misconduct. Um, I did confront him. Um, 27 years later, I hired a private investigator and um, confronted him. I needed to do that for my own healing. I mean, I didn't know if he was still alive. I didn't, I, you know, I was afraid he, that he wouldn't, he would refuse to see me to which my husband's reply was, oh, he'll see you all right. And you just tell him if he doesn't see you, then you're going to go see the secretary, the church custodian, or somebody's going to hear your story. Um, and he did finally agree to meet with me with conditions, which I agreed to. Um, so that was, that was pivotal in my healing. I also, um, contacted the, my former church and the elders there and, in, and asked that I have a meeting with them as well. And they agreed to meet with me. And I gave my abuser and I gave the church a list of things that they needed to read to me to say they were wrong in doing. And um, so I thank that church for doing that because not many churches would be willing to do that, to admit their mistake um, and, and allow me, because part of, the, part of it was not only that, but I wanted to tell the truth. I know that when they found us. And when they can talk to him, he gave his version of what was going on. No one ever asked me a question. No one ever asked me, when did this start? He told them that it started when I was 20, started when I was 16. No one asked me, is that the truth? Um, so in part, I needed to tell the truth to that church. They needed, and there were several people who were still at that church at the time. So, you know, the church almost, I mean, the church abandons you at that yes. point. Mm -hmm. And now you're left without the supports that you've had for a very long time. How does, how does that impact you, you know, with your family, with your parents, with, you know, the other people in your life? Well, you know, your ability to trust people um, is certainly one thing I found. And these were people in the church that I loved. I was very active and so involved. Some of them thought of me as their daughters. I, it, it was just a place I found peace and joy. And that was all stripped away from me in a moment. In, in a single moment, I would, these elders called me in, they sat me down and they looked at me and they said, because of what you have done, we're, ask, we're telling you, you need to leave this church. And, you know, from that moment on, I realized no one was safe, you know, I, and so that was another reason keeping the secret. Cause I, I knew what happened when people found out what I had done. And my husband was very supportive once I told him, but for 27 years, I feared what if, you know, what if he wonders why I didn't tell him why I couldn't trust him wonders if sexually he's going to treat me differently now that he knows this information, all of those fears that I had. And the problem when you keep a secret, it only builds, it builds and it starts to build the fear even greater. And so holding on to that secret became paramount to me. So it, it affected my relationship with him that I couldn't be honest with him. I couldn't, I couldn't say to him, you don't know how fortunate I feel to be in a relationship with you, who's someone who's caring, who doesn't hit me. This, my pastor hit me. It was such a controlling, horrible, horrible situation I was in that to finally meet someone who could care for me and love me, I couldn't tell him how much that really did mean to me. Um, you know, the, probably the most, it was my spiritual life was affected most. Um, I, I took my kids to church because I wanted them to have that experience, but I I couldn't 
embrace my faith the way I once did. I no longer prayed. I didn't open my Bible like I used to. And so I talk about that in the book and the chapter spiritual wounds. And I try to explain to people, you know, abuse of any kind is horrific, but when it happens in the church, it touches your very soul. It touches a very sacred part of your life and it changes it, it contaminates it. And many victims will never ever return to church or to God. Um, I have a relationship with God, but it's different now. It's it, And my church life is pretty much non-existent, but I can go if it's a funeral or wedding. Sometimes I go when my grandchildren go, but I don't embrace it at all. I, I cannot get past the fear. And, and I, I don't believe that every pastor, priest, and rabbi, there are good men out there. Absolutely. And this isn't about pastor bashing, but that's the result of having been abused within the church. Right. Because that is supposed to be a place of sanctuary and a place Correct. where you are, you know, it sort of automatically allows you to let your guard down and mm -hmm. be more vulnerable. And then when that's used against you, it's a double wound. Exactly. And I tell people, you know, if you have an issue or a problem, you can go to your church, you can go to your priest or your rabbi or your pastor. We as victims of clergy abuse can't do that. We don't have that same faith and trust. So we've lost that very support that at one time was so very important to us. Um, and most victims who have been abused within the church are very active in the church or their family's very active. They're not just people who happen to go by the church and then this happened to them. They're, they're usually sucked into the church because abusers know they're the easiest prey because they trust so much. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier, there were many trigger factors that occurred before mm -hmm. the final one. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those trigger factors were and, you know, how did they show up in your life? So probably the most common or easiest one is when I hear a song. He, he, my abuser was very funny, he thought, by singing different songs to me. So there would be songs that would appear on the radio. I, I could never listen to any music in the 70s because that just took me back there all the time. Any song from the 70s, I just couldn't do that. But there'd be other songs that would pop up and, I, and it would remind me of him. Um, anytime I walked past a minister's office, I got a knot in my stomach. And I knew it wasn't anything related to that particular pastor, but I had sex in a pastor's office. So for me to walk past an office like that, it just, I had a, just, it was like a gut feeling and then it would pass. And that became my norm. I mean, the other thing about all this was I just started to accept that as behavior that was going to happen. So I just knew we would walk past the office and I was going to get this feeling and then it would be gone. And I did that for 27 years thinking, okay, I'm handling this. I don't like it, but it's okay. I'm handling it. Another trigger factor was, um, and this was probably the worst one, when my children were little, uh, a group of us, young moms and dads, decided for New Year's Eve, we would go find a place to take our kids with an indoor swimming pool. I wasn't involved in the plane. I had no idea where we were going. It was out of town. And it happened to be at the same hotel where they found us. Wow. And I literally had to take everything I had to make myself first let my husband know that I was, had no problem with this. I mean, I felt myself saying, take let's just go get in back in the car and we're going to go back home. I knew I couldn't do that. So I went into the bathroom and I just started sobbing and I pulled myself together and I walked into that same lobby and went on with the, the, the weekend. And so I, in my mind, I could probably handle any trigger factor after that when I thought I can do this until that one that was on the way to Kingsport where he was once gone. You know, all these things that you're talking about are so important because it does get into our cellular memory and it is things like, you know, a, an area or a place or a smell or a song mm -hmm. that leads to those triggers. Um, can you touch on, as, as a young woman, a teenager, were you a virgin and what had you learned about sexuality and what was appropriate and not appropriate? prior to this and how did that conflict with as this is trying to sit on top of or in, in there? Um, I was a virgin. I grew up in the, the uh, evangelical church, which taught virginity. You don't do have sex before marriage. Um, and so I absolutely knew that, that sex before marriage was wrong. And that night that he had sex with me, that's when it changed for me that I knew 
I had committed this sin and that this was wrong. Um, I had not dated very much. My parents didn't allow me to date till I was 16. So I didn't really have any experience dating. And we went to church camp and you'd have your little camp church loves that lasted a week. And then you went home and that was the end of that. Um, so I had very little experience. Um, the encounter with him that first time was horrible. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Um, he was critical of me. Um, I was scared. Um, he immediately said, we have to get going because his wife would be home soon. And I sat there with this sheet wrapped around me. And he said, Sandy, you need to get dressed. And I can remember as a stupid, naive 16-year-old kid thinking, I can't take this sheet off because he'll see me without my clothes on. I mean, that's where I was with this. And, you know, then the next time, of course, I'm thinking, he's going to do this again. And I'm just going to have to figure out what to do. Um, and I, at that point also thought, okay, I, I've given my virginity away. So I, I must have to love him. And I must, I can't just walk away from this. That's, you know, you don't do that. Um, and then of course, he's trying to convince me how much he loves me and that he tells me this is God's will and that we should be doing this because together we can help the church. And you know, I questioned it in my mind, but I could never really question him. Um, he, he, he compared himself to David in the Bible and that God uses him in spite of his faults and that this is the way it's supposed to be. And again, okay, even if I thought this was not something I should be doing, who am I going to tell? Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell anybody. So I'm kind of trapped. And it became that's what I thought was my life. Um, when I when I first came into this field, I did this work where um, we were advocates for someone right when it became apparent that something mm -hmm. happened. So I might meet someone at a hospital or something like that. And one of the first things that they teach you is to tell them it's not their fault. Absolutely. And when you were in that space, was there a part of you that blamed yourself and another part of you that knew that it wasn't you, that it wasn't your fault. You weren't asking to have sex with him. Um, no, I always felt it was my fault because I should have been able to say no. So for 27 years, in, I, in my mind, I'd had an affair with a married man and that's how I saw it. And I didn't want anyone to know that I'd had an affair with a married man. And so I always blamed myself. I always felt. Now, once I began to that healing process of understanding what was really done to me. But even after I, I educated myself on grooming, on manipulation and gaslighting, even after that, there would be moments where my brain would flip back to, you could have said no. I wasn't in a position to say no. And I, I, I tell people, you need to understand when someone is in a vulnerable position in a weakened state, their coping skills are not the same that they would have if they were in a healthy place. And so someone who should be trusting someone who's helping them, whether it's a doctor, psychiatrist, counselor, pastor, priest, they have every right to expect that that person is going to help them through this crisis, not add to their problems and compound those problems by having sex with them. Mm -hmm. And it's, as you know, it is always their responsibility to stay within the boundaries of those, of their profession. And when they don't, they should be removed. But that doesn't happen with pastors and priests and the clergy. Yeah. Oftentimes Absolutely. they're forgiven. Uh, it, they made a, a moral fall. You know, uh, I, my abuser described it as a sin of the heart. I said, that sounds like a bad romance novel, sin Correct. of the heart. Right. I mean, seriously, you know, um, and he yeah. was a physically abusive, which added another dimension to my fear of telling anyone or the consequences of what would happen if I didn't keep this secret. And how far into this did the physical abuse start? Uh, about a year and a half. Um, so he slowly started to change from being this wonderful, kind person to me to being critical of the way I dressed. I weighed too much. Um, he didn't like the way I wear my hair. And I would accommodate. And then it would just, the, you know, the, he kept moving that criticism even farther to a point where I felt like, you know, and that's the gaslighting, you know, you're not good enough. And the other thing he would throw up at me is that, you know, no one else is going to want you because you're no longer a virgin. Well, in the church that I grew up in, your virginity was, you know, yes, you, 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 that's what you gave to your husband. And if you didn't have that gift, you really were worth less. Mm -hmm. And so 
for him to keep reminding me of that, that just reinforced the low self-esteem that I already had. And then I felt like, yes, he's going to be the only one who can love me. And your experience is just so incredibly the way human beings respond to this kind of thing. I want to talk about this. And if you do not want to talk about this, it's absolutely okay. This is really private, but I think it's one of those things that most people don't know about. Um, did your did your body respond in a pleasurable way, even though you were doing something you did not want to be doing? It did the second time. And then I remember thinking, okay, my body is betraying me. I felt like my body was betraying me because I didn't want to be doing this. And yet when he touched me, you know, there was a tingle or, and I'm thinking, this isn't right, but now I'm starting to feel these feelings and this physical feeling. And I, I just thought it's betraying me. It, it's, it's going against what I want to be doing. So um, yes, there was absolutely that feeling. Um, and, 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 you know, God made us to be pleasurable. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of having sex. And so again, he wasn't like he was physically beating me up while he's having sex with me. I mean, he is certainly having, um, trying to make it pleasurable to some extent, because he wants me to keep coming back. Um, but I think it all turned into that, the fact that I was no longer a virgin and I had now to give myself to him. I had no choice, but to do, do this because I wasn't a virgin and I agreed to this. I didn't tell him no. And for 27 years, I, I told myself that, well, you could have said no. And why didn't you tell him that you didn't want to do this? It wasn't in my makeup. It wasn't in where I was in my life at that time to be able to do that. And, and for 27 years, you didn't share this with anyone, even like mm-hmm. a close friend or close mm-hmm. family member. And, and so that must have been such a burden to carry with you every single day. I mean, this is very egregious. I mean, because there's a power differential, you know, mm-hmm. this authority that we're supposed to trust, you know, and put our trust in. And then when they abuse that, right. it, it, you can't really make sense of that and then to be abandoned and have to deal with this on your own for such a long time. I mean, think about this. How bad do you have to be to be thrown out of a church? I mean, I had the label of being thrown out of a church Mm -hmm. and, you know, my friends would later say after they knew my story would say, you you would have were the last person we would ever thought this had happened to because I was, I seemed to be, have my act together. I seemed to be happy and I was happy on this section of my life. But there was a part of me that lived in fear. And, you know, I thought anyone finds out that I've been thrown out of a church and I had an affair with a married man, they're going to see me differently. They're going to treat me differently. They're going to blame me. And I saw what happened when the elders found out, when some of the people in the church found I had people in the church who absolutely blamed me because now this wonderful pastor that everyone loved and he did great things in the church was now being forced to leave because of me. Hmm. And I was blamed for that. And I thought I lived with that. And I just knew that I would be blamed if anyone knew my story. And, and people, you know, I was very active in the schools with my children. I, I was president of a women's club. And so many times people in the church would say to me, why aren't you volunteering in the church? You don't do anything in the church. That's another sign. Watch for people who are very active other places, but don't want to participate outside of just showing up on a Sunday morning. Um, I sang in the choir when I was in high school and college and um, I was standing behind someone in church and I'm singing the song and she turns around and says, you have a beautiful voice. You need to be singing in the choir. And I almost lost it because I thought I should be, but I can't. And I wish I could. He took so much from me. He really mm-hmm. took yeah. so much from me. And I, and I had one woman say to me, well, you know, God didn't move. You did. If you want to have God in your life, you can. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. Mm-mm. And, you know, that's something I think is really important for people to hear is that the the logical brain that hasn't gone through this emotional trauma thinks very differently about how you should have responded. And we also go through a developmental process. And so at the age of 16, it's a little you know, different. There's, yeah, there's a reason at 16, you can't vote. Right. You really can't even right. consent sexually. There's statutory right. rape because our brains aren't developed enough to even think appropriately like that. And so it sounds so illogical, but it's absolutely a normal process. And you know, even 27 years and people go, why didn't this come up sooner? 
I'm telling you, that's absolutely normal. If you're out there and you're hearing this, you, you should trust your truth. Your truth is correct. The um, average age for abuse victims to come forward is 52. I was 49 when I came forward, but the average age is 52. Um, and, and not only is the age the factor, but you add that vulnerability um, onto it. You know, I was insecure. My parents were divorced. So I was, you know, I had that issue that I was dealing with. My dad wasn't in my life. And so you add on to that your immaturity. And here comes this man who looks like a, a knight in shining armor, who's, you know, he would say to me so many times, come into my office and let's talk about, you know, how you feel about your dad not being around. And that to me was wonderful. I mean, this, this was someone who, who appeared to understand me, who cared about how I felt. And so we had these conversations and he, nothing was amiss. And so that was that grooming and waiting, you know, pulling me in enough that I would trust him so much that when he did finally decide to kiss me, I wasn't going to question him. You know, I was just wondering though, with that statistic that you brought up, age 52 being the average, um, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I was wondering how much does menopause uh, being mm. a factor, you know, in that being the average age? You know, I don't know. I have no clue. Now, they, that average also includes men. So I would assume that that wouldn't be the issue as much. Um, I think it has more to do as, 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 you know, Jean had said, you come to maturity level, you begin to look around at life. Um, for me, it was okay. I remember getting to the 10 year mark with my husband, our anniversary thinking, you know, if he really did find out now, I think he would be okay. So there's also that you build a trust with the people around you that you finally decide, I think this person would be okay if I told them my secret. Where at 25, 26, you're still developing those relationships and you don't want to trust anyone. So I think it has more to do with maturity and the fact that you start to develop maybe a relationship and trust with people that you think. But I will tell you, the first time I told my best friend, I still sat there for 20 minutes and sobbed before I could get the words out. I was sexually abused by my pastor and still had a fear of how she's going to respond. Um, and telling my husband was gut-wrenching. I mean, I talk about that in the book and, and how I, I, I just couldn't tell him. I couldn't get the words out. And I knew he would be okay, but I, you know, the taking that chance, taking that chance and those words, I remember I could hear his words say to me, don't ever tell, don't ever tell. And no one's going to believe you. They, they, they were looping around in my mind as I'm sitting there sobbing, trying to tell my husband, the first thing I could get out was I'm okay. The kids are okay. And then I continued to cry, <laughs> but um, it, telling him was very difficult, very difficult. What did he say to you when you told him? The first thing he did was I said to him, I said, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And he just gripped my hand a little tighter. And then I said, I was their babysitter and his face just dropped. It was like the light bulb of, okay, this was a horrible thing. She must've been a teenage, you know, I'm gonna cry if I tell you, but he was so supportive and, and I, I could see the pain that was in my heart was now reflected back in his face. And to me, that was saying, I get your pain. And then, you know, he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm behind you 100%. And I said to him at that time, I said, I want to confront him. And he said to me, Sandy, you can do that if you want to, but have low expectations. Because this man is not going to be sorry. He's going to say he's sorry, but he's not going to be sorry. Where has he been for 27 years to try and make this right? And I, I understood who, what he was saying, and I appreciated it because it, it said to me he cared more about me than actually what the consequences were going to be if I confronted this man. Um, and then, uh, you know, my friends were surprised, but then he was, he said to me, you can tell me as much as you want or as little as you want and when you want to talk. And if you don't want to talk about it. So we left and went to dinner and we never talked about it. I mean, it was like, okay, when she's ready to talk, she'll talk, but he was very supportive. That's wonderful. And, um, you know, just, you know, for a little bit of insight on your part, when we go through, uh, and, and let's just call it change of life because men go through it as well mm -hmm. as opposed to just menopause, but something happens in our amygdalas where they begin to soften. And I'm mm -hmm. 54 and, and the way that I experienced it was that everything that happened to me in my teenage years was coming up for healing. The stuff I couldn't right. even begin to process back then you know, you're in, you, you go through such a pattern in life where, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't know anything. 
and you think just, you do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're and then you're dealing with trying to figure your life out and paying bills and buying homes and getting married and raising kids. And then you get to this stage of life and there's the time, but also the brain chemistry that changes that allows this openness to happen. And we certainly went through this mm -hmm. yep. where that stuff kind of comes up for healing all of the all the stuff that happens for so many people, unfortunately, uh, in their teenage years, whether it's people cheating on them or treating them badly or taking advantage or even worse. And so I, I think there is something along those lines of just like you can't really give consent at 16. When you hit 50, you believe yourself, you trust more in, in that process. Things make sense in a way that the truth you're being lied to about doesn't anymore and mm -hmm. you know and also the established security you mm -hmm. have with your husband right and it's about just... living yeah living life you've lived a life now at 50 mm -hmm. that you didn't have a life you know you've lived at 16 you yeah. didn't have those experiences mm -hmm. and I, I think my husband certainly would have been a supporter if I had told him right away but I don't know that he would have had the compassion um and the understanding that he had at his age as well I think mm -hmm. his maturity added to his being able to make sure I was okay and not how that affected him. Where he, when you're in your twenties, it's gonna be, okay, my wife has done this and what do I do with it? Um, yeah. It might've been a little bit different. So it was, the timing was probably perfect for both of us to, not only for me to tell him, but to hear it as well. Can you talk about why you wanted to confront your abuser and what that experience was like for you? And did it help you have closure or did it re-traumatize you or was it both? Um, I think part of it was the anger that I felt that I wanted him to know, I get it now. I know now what you did to me. This wasn't about love and this wasn't God's will. And it wasn't God saying we were married in his eyes. I, there was a part of me, just more of an anger thing to say, I wanted to look at him and say, I get it now. And you had no right to do what you did to me. The second thing was, I think I needed to face him to, I, I wanted an acknowledgement from him of an understanding of what he did to me, which was a totally, should not have had that expectation because they don't understand. His concept and what he thought he had done to me was that I had taken away, he had taken away my teenage years and that I didn't have a normal teenage life. Well, that's true, but I could have lived with that. I, I could have gone on because my senior prom wasn't what it should have been and that I didn't get to go on Friday night dates. I could have lived with that. So he never could articulate exactly what he did to me. I had given him a list of about 20 things that I said to him, you need to read this list to me because this is what you, because the first thing he said was, now, not for my sake, but for yours, you need to forgive me, which is so inappropriate, so inappropriate. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're right. I do need to know how to learn to forgive you, but you, I can't forgive you if you don't understand what you did to me. And so I handed him this list of 20 things that, you know, you took away my virginity, you, you contaminated my spiritual life, you hit me, you were wrong when you did these things. And I want you to read this list to me. And so while he didn't, his answer was, well, I don't remember doing all this. He may not remember, but the fact that I was able to say to him, yeah, this is what you did. Um, was healing for me. I was disappointed in the meeting because he then turned it around. And he started talking about how he'd had all these terrible things in his life. His father was an alcoholic. This is why he did what he did. He's been in counseling off and on through the years. He's been, get this, he was identified as a sexual addict. Um, so everything started to turn about him and he became the victim almost. So I, so I was disappointed, um, but I'm glad I did it. Um, I don't, I, I caution all victims. It's not something everyone should or can do. I did have the advantage that a lot of victims don't have and that he couldn't deny it because it was known within the church. So it wasn't like he could say, I don't know where this woman came from, but it didn't happen. He had to acknowledge the fact that it did happen. He lied about how long it had been going on. Um, but that's, you know, I didn't expect that he would come to the truth with that either. And Bill made the point, my husband made the point, Sandy, this is a man who's lied all of his life. He's going to say and do what he needs to do so that you don't pursue this any farther and you don't demand that he's out of the ministry or you, you file a lawsuit or anything like that. He's going to look for ways that he can save his skin. So if he needs to say he's sorry, that's what he'll say. Because I was worried he wouldn't read the list. Bill said, oh, he's gonna read the list. <laughs> 
You know, another uh, bit of resource that might be interesting is um, a book called The New Feminine Brain. Oh, that's and, interesting. And in there, she talks about the masculine brain that it, the corpus callosum, which um, connects both hemispheres of the brain, women have a fluid one where we can be in both brains at the same time, but men do not. Oh. In the left brain, which which governs logic and reason, but also love and happiness and joy is only in the left brain. And so they have, she talks in there about some men have a tourniquet on their corpus callosum. So they never go into the right brain, which says what you're doing is wrong and causing pain to another person. So it really is something he in his brain could experience that right. what he did was not those that didn't hurt right. you. It, yeah. it leads to an ability to compartmentalize everything and really yes. kind of keep things you know, tightened up and, and defined in the way they wanted to. And that so way they can function. Lie. Mm-hmm. And they can function that way. Because if right. you if you if you are a person who has compassion or that you have a sense of right and wrong, you, you can't continue that kind of life. Correct. And 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 function. And and so yes, that was I, I could very easily see that as being a part of how he thought and 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 so um it, it, it was a good meeting in the sense that I, I was glad that I got to do it. And, um, but I don't, I don't think he, in fact, I know he wasn't sorry because um, about a year after that, he had discovered that I was continuing to talk about my abuse and what would happen in the church. He called me and started berating me, telling me, well, you said you forgive me. And you have, if, you're, if you've forgiven me, you wouldn't be talking about this. Well, I tell people forgiveness is not silence. That's not what forgiveness means. So mm-hmm. But he was extremely angry. I, I got off the phone. I was shaking. Uh, Bill called his supervisor and said, that man is never, ever to contact my wife again. That, you know, you don't do that if you're understanding of what your victim has gone through. You just don't do that. And then my other fear of confronting him was I was so afraid I would walk into that room and be 16 all over again mm-hmm. and that I would fall for his sorriness and so you know I, I could hear him saying you know I, I didn't mean to hurt you and I thought am I going to sit there and be 16 and believe everything he tells me again um, which I didn't but um, that was another fear I had. How did um, kind of telling your husband and really coming out with this secret how did that change you? It freed me it certainly freed me um, and I also found that the truth isn't that scary the truth is really not as scary as you think it might be. Now, you know, it wasn't easy. And I I tell victims, you know, you need to tell someone. And I understand how difficult that is. I said for 27 years, I didn't tell anyone. And certainly if someone had asked me, I would have denied it. I would have, there's no way I was going to let this secret come out. So, but telling it was so freeing and I, it, it allowed me to be who I wanted to be and needed to be. For 27 years, I let this man occupy a space in my brain that, that, said to me, okay, I'm still here and I'm a part of your life and I'm defining how you're functioning. Once I let go of that secret, he wasn't there anymore. And I could do and be who I was meant to be, not the way he had created me. Do you know if um, his, is he still married to his wife and does she know and uh, no, she divorced him when he moved to the next church after our church. Um, he had a um, sexual relations with a 20 year old who got pregnant. She did leave him at that time. And that was the other thing I did. Now I knew her in the church because she was the pastor's wife and I sang in the choir with her. And so I also made the decision to have my investigator find her. And not that I was responsible for her pain, but I wanted her to know that I felt bad for her, that I was a part of anything that caused her pain. And so I, you know, I just thought I'm going to call her and just tell her. And she couldn't have been more gracious. She couldn't have been any kinder. She was very understanding. We talked for almost an hour, then discovered that she lived very close to my daughter who was in Charlotte at the time. So I've made several trips to see her. Um, I sent her the book. Um, you know, we have a good relationship. I have a good relationship with her. It's, it, and I know that my husband now, I will tell you things. That's a little odd. <laughs> He doesn't quite get that, but men, again, I'm not sure they always understand those things. Um, so she, she, she too was abused by him in a sense, um, right. mm-hmm. you know, and, and people always wonder why she didn't leave any sooner. Well, again, she was trapped in this relationship. And like she said, I'm the pastor's wife. Who am I going to tell? 
I can't, there's no one I can go to. Right. And, you know, she of course is going to believe you because she was living it as well. Yes. And mm -hmm. so when you're speaking truth, she hears that truth. Yes. And, and, and she said to me through the years, you know, I've never had anyone say how sorry they were for me. It was always, they felt bad for him because he lost his ministry or he yeah. had to move to another church. Um, and, you know, he made a mistake and we need to forgive him. And there was never any compassion for her. Um, so she was kind of left. I mean, really, we had that comment, that, that connection, because again, I was thrown from the church and she had no support either. She was abandoned as well. She was. She absolutely was. And she talks about how she, her faith was lost a little bit because of, of the reaction of those around her. And they felt like he had made him only made a mistake. Now, the other thing about this too, as I should probably mention, right after he was hired at our church, there was another woman that came forward, a young teenager, and accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. He admitted to it, said he was sorry, said it would never happen again my elders and the senior pastor at the time decided to let him continue in the youth group without giving any information out to the congregation. And it was only within six months of that accusation, which he didn't deny that he was kissing me in my hallway. Mm -hmm. So he had a, a pattern of this, but they wanted to, they wanted to ignore it. It's easier to ignore it. Mm -hmm. How did, how did your kids react when this came out? Um, my daughter was very emotional. She sobbed. Um, she wondered, um, you know, if I was okay. She did ask me if my sisters knew. And I think she asked me that to know if I had any support. Because um, they were both like in college at the time. And I said, yes, they know. And I said, now, if you have any questions, you don't feel comfortable asking me, you know, you can ask your dad. <laughs> he said, I'd rather not have him ask your sisters. <laughs> He was like, I can only do so much here. There's only much I can do. My son, on the other hand, was very stoic. Um, he held it in. He sat there the entire time kicking his foot and looking downward. I then kind of jokingly to try to break the ice said to him, well, Bob, I've been speaking out about this. I've been trying to help other victims. So I said, who knows? I may be on the Oprah show. And he just said, go for it, mom. So that was his support. And um I know my daughter's read the book. I'm not sure he has read the book and that's okay. That's okay too. I just lost my question. <laughs> Hold on a second. Cause it's going to be good. Okay. Um, your, your sisters, did they know while it was happening? They did not. Um, my old, my, I'm, I'm the oldest of the five. So they were younger. My sister who's eight years younger than I am was probably like junior high age. She said to me, I knew there was something going on because the way mother and, you know, we, they were acting, but I didn't know what. Um, when I told her, she said, oh my gosh, he baptized me. Do you think I should be rebaptized?" <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of visceral yucky yeah. feeling that you get when you think about what this man did and what he was doing and then pretending to be preaching on Sunday mornings after having sex with me on Saturday night. I mean, it's all very creepy and disgusting and, uh, and yet he's still a pastor. So, um, and he brought you to his home. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, Sandy, can you talk about some of the work that you're doing as an advocate? I, I volunteer for a ministry called the hope of survivors ministry. They, uh, work mostly with adult women. Now I know that's a hard concept for a lot of people to understand, but you know, I go back to that vulnerability. They're in this pastor's office getting counseling, um, but they work with mostly with adult women. Um, I've also been involved with SNAP, which is the Survivors Network Against Abusive Priest. Um, and that's mostly people who've been abused by priests as children and young teenagers. Um, and then I serve on the board of COCA, which is a council on child abuse, against child abuse. Um, and I do some one-on-one -on -one counseling with victims um, as that occasion arises. Um, you know, I, I really just feel like my story is so important and it is a powerful story that I know can help other people because so often I have thought, what if I'd heard someone's story when this was happening to me? Because I thought I was the only one. I truly believed I got the only bad apple in the, in the barrel. There is no other minister or pastor out there that would ever do anything like this. So I got the, the one that would do this and I'm the only one this has ever happened to. So I know that it, you know, how would it have changed my life if I'd heard someone else's story? 
and maybe they've given me the courage to come forward. And I also want victims to understand it's there's just hope and healing. It's not easy um, and it's never going to go away. Um, you have to learn to figure out how to navigate those trauma moments and trigger factors. But if you begin to understand that what was done to you, not what happened to you, but what was done to you, it's not your fault. And you have a life to live outside of what was done in this form of abuse. Well, I, I think you are a really great example that there are victims out there that are just, you know, kind of keeping all this in the dark and struggling with this you know, alone. And, you know, at very least, if they can get your book, you know, let me pray upon you, they can at least, you know, hear that they're not alone. And the but, other thing they can do is there's websites, it's in the back of my book, but there are, there are a lot of websites, the Hope of Survivors has a web page that has a wealth of information. It is uh, religiously based. So I caution those who are still in an issue with God. Um, you know, some of I will even say some of their posts are, are triggering to me as well. Um, so, but there's also Survivor Sanctuary. Um, there's several out there. And I, if you Google clergy sexual abuse, you, you may find the right support group through in the internet. And that's a good start because it gives you that anonymity and you don't have to worry about telling everything. You can listen to other survivors. So that's a good start. I've told, you know, for victims is to look for a place where you can learn things about sexual abuse and clergy abuse. And if someone wanted to get in contact with you directly, how would they do that? Uh, I have a website. Uh, it's my name. So it's www.sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. I also have a Facebook page, um, but my website, um, I, I have a website there that people can ask me questions. The book is available there. It's available on Amazon. And I, I, I do encourage people to read the book because I, I, I now know it's been out for about a year. People have responded to me so positively and told me how much it's helped them. I suggest that church leadership read it because if you don't understand the dynamics of clergy abuse you're not going to respond the way you should and it's not just this moral fall it's a professional violation that needs to be addressed as well mm -hmm. and you know for just to wrap up if you could say something to your 16 year old self or a 16 year old girl or someone that's in the beginnings of this and in that place of confusion doubt and pain what would you like to say to her? You have the strength and the courage to tell someone and whatever happens, it's not your fault. It's his behavior that causes the pain and his problem and that you are not responsible for him. He's responsible for his own actions and that there are people around you that will love you and trust you and you need to tell someone. I mean, that was my, I just couldn't feel like I could tell anyone. And if I could go back, I would say, yes, you can tell someone. Sandy, first off, just want to say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Thank you. Second off, I, I wanted to say that, you know, the work that you're doing is impacting so many people out there. And just really, I want to say thank you so much for that. Well, I do appreciate that. And that's my hope that, that my story does create a help to someone else who's been through this or going through it, or know, if you know someone who's been abused, you know, how I've, I've tell people, you know, you need to understand how to respond to a victim too. Um, and then we, we don't have time to go through all that, but I talk about that in my book too. You know, what do you say and what do you not say to a victim of clergy abuse? That's a really good point as right, well. Right. And, you know, unfortunately I wish it was a unique story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if it's beyond something that happens with clergy, uh, it's much more rampant in our culture. Some form of, I believe most human beings go through some form of boundary violation um, as children at mm -hmm. some point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, everything we keep a secret is what always is going to be the thing that stops the healing process. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's really courageous of you to speak out, especially confronting your abuser. That is and it worked out fairly well. I mean, I, we've seen other people do that where it doesn't always, right. but I think right. you were doing that for you, no matter what came back at you. And that was, that's, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Mm -hmm. You know, human beings have been sharing their stories since the beginning of time to bond and heal and grow. 
And we hope that by you sharing your story, it's enriched your life and the lives of our listeners. Thank you. We want to wholeheartedly thank you, all of our listeners, for joining us today on Couple Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, this is such an important topic. Make sure they're getting this information. Reach out. I'm I'm sure Sandy would be happy to talk to anyone who's willing to start this healing process. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as the Couples Weekend Intensive, our premier program called Couple to Couple, and our online community called Connections, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.